Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. How do you get that balance between giving your kids the life you want to give them because you've got enough to give them the best possible life, but at the same time, get them to understand the value. My kids have loads of soccer jerseys, right? When I was 15 years old when I got my first one and I didn't get the one I wanted. I got the second version, but nevertheless, I wore it every day for like a week. Like I really, really understood the value. This is why I think it's hilarious that we grew up in different countries. My name is Roman Tegel, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segel, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's episode, we're talking to Raman Segel. Are we talking to you? <laughs> we are talking to the other Roman Segel, the more <laughs> famous, better looking, more successful Roman Segel, founder, president of Rob Marketing PR. Roman is from Newcastle in the UK, and I accidentally met him several years ago when I found there was another Roman doing marketing stuff. And we've since become friends. So I thought it'd be fun to have my doppelganger on the show. What do you sometimes, think? Sometimes you order Amazon things under his name, right? All the time. I'm screwing <laughs> with the algorithm completely. <laughs> His wife is like, what's with all these comic books? Why right, do they keep exactly. writing? <laughs> oh, well, you're supposed to order them and send them to your house. <laughs> <laughs> I loved him. You know, I never thought there'd be a better version of Rum and Sagal. And today I- I've met a-, a different version of you. I shouldn't say better, different. You totally can have this podcast with him. I can take a year <laughs> off now. It's good. No, it wouldn't be half as fun. He's way more optimistic than you are. Because <laughs> he's had more success. <laughs> I loved hearing about, sort of in some ways, I was comparing your experiences, mainly because you guys have the same name, but I really enjoyed hearing about his experience growing up in England and his own upbringing and what motivated him to start his business and his company. And yet there were some clear differences and then there were a lot, you guys have a lot in common. I mean, I feel like in some ways the core of who you guys are is very similar. You know, I would challenge anyone to go find someone with their name and meet right. them because it, it puts this really interesting filter on you think about those comparisons. Like you can meet anyone on the street and say, oh, well, I have this in common and I have that in common. But when they right. share the same name and in the sense of my name, having a certain amount of ethnicity, Indian, Punjabi, even a little bit of UK heritage and him having all of that, it does make you wonder. In fact, I kind of wonder if you go back five generations because his dad's from Pakistan originally right. before partition, as is mine, before yep. it became India. And I'm like, 
is there a linkage? And the real coincidence is that in this generation, two men decided to name their son Ruman or two mm-hmm. moms, you know. Uh, but yeah, he's the kind of guy I would meet through friends and still want to hang out with. And I, I think that's been the fun of our friendship. He, he wrote a really interesting blog post a year ago when we finally met up in Boston because he's moved from the UK to Boston about a year and a half ago. And I would challenge any listener, go go find someone with your name and reach out. It's easier now than ever. Especially on Google, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's interesting too about names, not related to you guys, but just names is they carry a meaning. So you're touching on something that's actually much deeper than just, haha, you guys have the same name. But I know when I was deciding on names for my own children, doing a lot of research on, well, what's the root of this word and what does that mean and what's the context of it? So you're absolutely right. Like there's probably a lot, just something a lot bigger in the universe. It's like the stars aligned. And the fact that like, just the fact that you guys both, well, you don't work in marketing anymore, but you were in marketing and you're almost the same age and you are living on the same coast now. Yeah, young families. And it's because we're both in the same field that we accidentally, I mean, it was a case of mistaken identity of someone thinking I was him reaching out to me several years ago. And that was like, oh, there's another Roman in marketing. And when we compare notes on families, values that came from our parents, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is kind of the interesting coincidence in it. He's not the only person out there that has it. Sharon, you and I share a lot of commonalities. We but do. It's just so funny. <laughs> so funny. we hope you'll enjoy the conversation with the upgraded version of Roman with Roman Segal. <laughs> So today we're talking to me, Roman, another Roman. I hear it's a better version of you. Yeah, the cooler version. Roman, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Man. Thanks, Roman. It's a pleasure to be here and great to meet you as well, Sharon. Good to meet you too, Roman. That's so funny and for you guys. I've only ever known another Sharon Lee once in my life, and we've actually never had a chance to be like, hi, Sharon, nice to meet you. Yes, hi, Sharon. It's good to be here. It's it's li- it's life-changing, I have to tell you. <laughs> when Roman and I met in Boston, it was last summer, right? Yeah, yeah. It was that moment where... You thought the universe could very much end right? just in a back to the future style moment. But it was great to actually meet him finally because we'd talked via social media for about 10 years or something like that via LinkedIn. So it was, it was cool to meet him. And were you everything you thought you'd be in this parallel universe of each other? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. What was interesting when we actually spent some time together is we had incredible similarities in terms of our upbringing and also just the, our outlook and life and things like that. I mean, Roman, maybe you can talk to that as well, but we certainly hit it off very quickly and had a lot of commonality. So it was just fun to meet and get to know him. And yeah, and obviously be here today is, is a pleasure. Yeah, it, it's funny because there are actual other Roman Segals out there. I think in India, I guess I've gotten Google alerts on them before, but <laughs> none of them were in the weird intersection of marketing and tech that both of us inhabit. And so we just started seeing each other online. And and I think there was like a case of mistaken identity, again, a long time ago with someone else thinking I was him. And yeah, in the era of, I guess, Friendster and Facebook and LinkedIn, it was easy to connect. And then you moved here and I was like, okay, now we actually have to meet. We're only a few (laughs) hours away. So Roman, I guess you clearly are not from here. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you from? I mean, can you tell us something about what what life was like growing up as the other me? (laughs) 
Yeah, sure I can. So I grew up in a place called uh, Newcastle, which is in the northeast of England. So for people that know British accents very well, they tend to spot mine relatively quickly. I mean, I'm not as uh, broad as, as some people from the northeast who are called Geordies. That's the phrase to describe people from that part of the world. So yeah, I was the youngest of three brothers and so grew up in a pretty... I'm not going to say working class as if it was like a terrible upbringing, far from it. We had a really great upbringing in the west end of Newcastle. My parents ran um, a post office, so we're very much integral to the community that they service, but also that was very close to where we lived. So I spent my entire childhood in and around this particular postcode, but I suppose didn't actually go very far when I was young. And yeah, it was a very fun upbringing, I have to say. I was very fortunate to be the third child, so my parents were less scrapping for every penny they could get. So I benefited from that. Nevertheless, like all Indian kids, I was working in the shop when I was about seven or eight. I was telling my eldest son that actually the other day that I was working in my parents' post office selling. We had like a confectionery side that sold all kinds of chocolate and candy and all that type of thing. And I was I was genuinely working when I was about seven or eight years old, which is just part and parcel of of being brought up in in that type of environment and yeah and then grew up in that part of the world and then ultimately set a business up in that part of the world I have lived in other places and traveled the world as well and then there's a long story which takes me to living in Boston and in the northeast of the U.S. now which is a fun place to be. What generation were your parents? Were they from India who immigrated to the UK or what's their story? Yeah that's right so my parents were both originally from the north of India in Punjab region. Uh, my dad actually, because he's nearly 80 now, so by, when he was born, it was, you know, I, I don't know if my, my geography and history combined is right, but I'm pretty sure it was pre-splitting with Pakistan. So actually where he grew up is probably south end of Pakistan now. And uh, Do you know where, a town? They were all in a city called Jalandhar, which, okay, okay. I, but I, what I don't know is whether they moved there or whether they were there before that, but Interesting enough, so my granddad, my dad was one of eight brothers and his father was, from what everyone tells me, was an absolute diamond of a guy who owned a steel business, which employed thousands and thousands of people in that part of the world, which probably tells you where some of the entrepreneurial blood comes from. And then my mum grew up in a place called Flar, which is slightly south of there, which she thinks is like the center of the universe even till today, because they had a Pepsi factory, which which was such a big deal (laughs) when we were growing up. And they moved to the UK in 1969. So my dad studied in the UK. If you meet my dad, he's the most sensible, quiet, cautious guy in the world. And story goes that he studied in the UK and then sent a letter back to his father saying, I'm not coming home, (laughs) which in those days, right, in the 60s was a big deal. But he basically decided to live in the UK. Yeah. And then my mum and him got married in India, moved to the UK. And then they obviously decided to stay there ever since. What did you want to be when you were growing up as a kid? And I guess that part two of that question is what did your parents want you to be? All I ever wanted to be was a footballer or a soccer player. That was always my, like, I didn't know anything I'd never really considered anything else, even though I wasn't particularly good. But in my mind, that was the only thing I'd ever considered in my life. And my parents, they were very much like, be an accountant, be a doctor, be a lawyer, and then realized I was pretty thick and couldn't do any of that stuff. And so I remember when I told my mum that I was choosing marketing at university, 
And I'm pretty sure she said, you're going to go and work at the markets, which what that meant at the time was <laughs> in the UK, in the, some of the older family had market stalls where they used to sell clothing or whatever. And she was like, I'm very confused. Why do you need to be educated in that if you can just go and do that? And I'm like, no, no, marketing, it's a whole other subject. And so, and even today, she has no idea what I do. For many years, she thought I was a journalist because I worked in PR for a while and still do. So she just figured... I was a journalist and that was easier to tell her friends. But you literally have your own company now oh, yeah, with your yeah. name on it. What does she think you're doing now? I actually don't know. I think she's like thinks I'm a drug dealer or something like that. Oh, that can't be true. <laughs> my, my, my folks are both educated and intelligent people, but I just don't think they get marketing at all. It was funny because my mom was telling me about YouTube or, or Facebook a couple of weeks ago, how it's got some feature on it. And I was sitting there thinking... You, you really have no idea what my company does. <laughs> but I've just given up trying to have that conversation now. It's more amusing just to see how it plays out. But yeah, I think I would, my family were quite surprised when I finished school. And what I mean by school isn't college or university, like high school, because I don't think I was ever deemed to be that, like particularly academic or anything like that. But I managed to knuckle down and come through high school with actually quite decent grades and get a place in university, which shocked quite a lot of people, I think, at the time. It tends to be a bit of an interesting running theme in my life of seemingly doing something unexpected that no one thought I would do. So, Were you a terrible student? Were you at risk of failing out of school? Yeah, You know what, Sharon? I can't really remember, but I'm probably giving myself a bit of a disservice here. I just like to talk and just have fun, right? It was more... I just never really studied particularly hard or took school that seriously until... I got to a point, uh, my brother, had, my, one of my brothers had graduated from university by that point as well. So I think at that point I was like, oh God, I should probably actually put some effort in here. And that was probably it. It wasn't that I was non-academic or didn't care. There was just more fun things to do, right? Like chase girls and play football and sure. all that kind of stuff, like all the best things in life yeah. rather than actually work. <laughs> I, I want to probe on one thing because we used to call the show Model Minorities. We're, we're now calling it Modern Minorities. But in the U.S., in that same era that we grew up in, right, the 80s effectively, Asians were a minority, but our parents came over for the most part and were doctors and engineers. And so that was what you did. You didn't play football. You didn't chase girls. You studied on the weekends. And <laughs> when I went to my mom's family's in the UK, and when I went over there, I experienced the Indian culture in the UK being much more acclimated versus, I hate these words, exceptional. But like this expectation of being exceptional is what a lot of East and South Asians had in the mm -hmm. US in the 80s and 90s. And that came from outer society, right? That the term model minorities, what was foisted upon us, our parents' expectations who came over with all these degrees. But it felt like Indian people in the UK had a much more normal American experience, or I guess normal British experience. Is that, what was the experience? What was the expectation of society on brown people in the UK? Oh, we've lost, we've lost we've the lost, other Roman. We've lost the original Roman. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should call him that, Sharon. <laughs> the original. He's just, you know what? No, but when we're emailing each other, sometimes I just write Roman UK. And sometimes I think someone on your team wrote me back, okay, Roman US. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever funny. I get an email from you, I'm like, why am I emailing myself at this time? <laughs> what was I drinking at the time? Like, why was I so rude to myself? <laughs> 
why am so, I using American words? This makes no sense to me. True. We spelled color incorrectly. I, I know. <laughs> Rum in US, we lost you for a few seconds back there. I, yeah, so I guess the gist of the question is, what's the brown experience for people in the UK? Because my observation is it's very different from the model minority expectation that society has of South and East Asians in America. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And obviously I can only talk from my personal experience. And, and Nope, I, you're speaking for all British people. I, okay, that's fine. The queen of the proof. There's, a, I suppose, a couple of things to bear in mind. I mean, we grew up in the north of England where even to this day is a predominantly white part of the country. So if you grew up in the south in, in and around London or in the Midlands or even in the west of the country, I, I suppose whatever ethnic background you're from, particularly being you know Indian or, or you know Asian, there are a lot more Asians in those parts of the world. Whereas in the northeast of England, where I grew up, we were very much the minority. And you know, in some senses, that was good in the sense that you had some level of differentiation. But in some senses, growing up in the 80s wasn't particularly nice at times. It wasn't uncommon to hear a racial slur, particularly for my parents, actually. Many years I you been know, working in their post office. If my parents wouldn't basically give someone that whatever they call it a gyro, effectively the money they were entitled to from the government because they didn't have the right identification. Then what used to happen is they would just basically call my parents every name under the sun. And that was pretty common, I have to say, in the 80s and early 90s. But having said that, we had a good, strong community within the Indian community, actually, generally, but also beyond that. I joke about playing football. I think playing football and actually sport and being seen as an equal in something is a real level playing field. And I was fortunate that I was actually quite a, a good player and played for teams and school team and things like that. So that was helpful that it didn't really matter what, what color you were or whatever, you were just one of the guys. So I think it would have been a lot harder for me growing up in the seventies or whatever. Whereas I think the eighties and then into nineties changed. Uh, what, I, what I would say is I think having lived in the U S for 18 months, it feels to me like race is a much bigger thing over here than it is in the UK. And it's talked a lot more here than I ever experienced in the UK. And I'm not a historian to necessarily talk in detail about why that is, but it's a real constant hot topic in the US. And obviously for recent reasons, you can see why, but that's certainly something that I've seen a difference between the two countries or certainly from living in the northeast of the two countries that it seems to be less of a hot topic or it has done in my life in the last 15, 20 years than it is here uh, living in the US, which might surprise you. I don't know. <laughs> and you mentioned, I, I feel like this all maybe ties into some of your background, but you're the youngest of three children, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. And did you feel like your parents reacted to you differently or treated you differently growing up in any way, being that you were the baby? I was definitely a mistake. If I didn't mean that, <laughs> but okay. No, I know, I know. Um, yeah, so I think it's a good story actually on, on that that you guys might find amusing. Is uh, So about a month before I was born, one of my dad's brothers in India, him and his wife couldn't have children. And so my parents said basically discussed and decided that when I was born, they were going to effectively ship me off to India to be effectively a, a donated child. Wow. Oh. And or maybe it was a few months before I was born. And then a month before I was born, they didn't know that my parents were thinking this, but they adopted a girl who obviously they 
and took on as their daughter. <laughs> so my parents were stuck with me. <laughs> so in that, to answer your question, Sharon, my parents were really nice to me. And I think it was probably a guilt thing more than anything. <laughs> Where they, yeah, they were, I think that the difference with me versus the other two, and I've literally a month ago just had my third son. So, so I think it just, when you have, you know, your, your, if it is your youngest or your third child is, the way that you are around that child, even I can see to myself, is there's a much calmer demeanor about you. You've been through this before. And so what I certainly seen when I grew up was I was a very happy-go-lucky person. And I, I am still to this day where I go off and do my own thing. And my parents are just always there to support me and, and all that type of thing. So for me, I don't think it was... I think that they probably had harsher realities being in the UK in the 60s and 70s. But by the time I was born in the 80s, times had moved on slightly. For them, getting a racial slur in a, at work was water off a duck's back. They'd been so used to it. And for me, it was... I never really had to face it direct on very often. So I was just very fortunate that I had two brothers there to look after me and also just parents that were very caring and loving and also just gave me the opportunities. That is one of the reasons I think the generation I was brought up in in the UK, if you actually look at the, like my cousin set, a lot of us have either done their own business or taken over the family business or got great professions. And Indian parents put a huge amount of effort on, or I suppose, emphasis on education, which I think... Even in the US, I see how much emphasis Indian parents put on education. It's phenomenal. But at the same time, that generation that I was part of, the parents were educated, but they'd come from India to the UK and they were working, they were basically entrepreneurs. So they had clothes shops, they had paper shops, they had whatever it was that they were doing. We had a real life role model of someone not only working very hard, but actually creating opportunities for themselves. So by the time my generation not only got exposed to that work ethic, but also then got the benefit of a modern education in a university in the UK, which is probably one of the reasons that if you look at that particular generation, I look at my counterparts and friends and family in the UK, everyone's done pretty well for themselves. And I think you could probably dial it back to that combination of seeing your parents working ridiculously hard, but Mm -hmm. at the same time being given educational opportunities that your parents worked very hard for. And I think I'm certainly very grateful for that. And I'm not sure if you guys tell me if that's the same within, in Alabama, I'm not sure. And Sharon, I know you're in New York, but I don't know what your upbringing was. I'm curious to to hear, is that a similar thing that you guys have benefited from? Yeah, we hear that a lot actually across all of our guests. Well, not all, but most of our guests. I think education for most cultures and immigrant communities especially is a really big part of just the way that people were brought up. Sometimes I feel like it could be cultural, but then sometimes I do think it's the way that my family always looked at it was it's like the great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get a great degree from a good school, then that puts you on a level playing field as everybody else in a certain country. And so I know for my own family, that education was always a big priority. And even I see that too. I mean, I'm a mom of two boys and their their schoolwork and how they're doing academically to me is much more important than how well they swim or how hard they can kick in Taekwondo. (laughs) Although my husband might have a different perspective on that. (laughs) I, I wonder if it's like a generational thing. So whatever your ethnicity, it's how many generations in are you, right? Because to, to some degree, all of our parents or grandparents' ability to make the trip, some of it was 
through wit and luck, but some was I had a degree, I got a job, or I was able to think on my feet. And so we've moved to like this really affluent part of Connecticut. We don't live in the affluent part, but we drive around it. And we were looking at these houses today. We went for a walk on a beach and you could see across the bay, these just amazing houses. I never want to own one of them, but they were like, wow, how did they buy these? And and generational wealth came to Mm -hmm. mind. And it's the how many generations back did that generational wealth start? And and I look at all of us doing the sort of things we're doing. We're all doing okay. We can afford a certain lifestyle. But that lifestyle and that education was afforded by the sacrifice our parents made. And my daughter is going to have a cushier life and she gets more. I have to try to not spoil her, right? Mm-hmm. And I think about three generations down. I mean, we're not going to have as much as those people with that massive beach house that I saw, but I don't know. I, I think I've been thinking a lot more about that. I don't want to necessarily generate generational wealth, but at the same time, there's systemic advantages and, and systemic disadvantages across generations that we are starting to recognize through racial injustice and stuff in this country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just going to poke on the generational wealth thing. And you, you mentioned you don't necessarily want to create that, but why not? Why wouldn't you want to create that? It's Bill Gates says, I'm not going to give my kids all my money. You know, yeah. so it's it's that. I mean, he's still going to give his kids like a million bucks, right, and pay right. for their college or more. I would think. <laughs> well, uh, no, he literally has said him and Warren Buffett have made that well pack to give away all their money. Yeah, but it's there is something to be said. I don't want to say about making your way in the world, but knowing you can do it on your own, not because of dad's money. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like, yeah, knowing there's a backstop, maybe, but and I'm, I hate to pass judgment on people, but I see people who don't do things on their own, who haven't had to work hard or face hardship. I don't want my kid to face that hardship, but that hardship is going to be what defines you. It's going to be what gives you the grit to start an agency to, I think if we, if all the three of us, I mean, we're all doing entrepreneurial things right now. I think if we had it a little bit easier growing up, do you think you would have done the thing you're doing right now? Probably not. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah. It's really difficult to know almost where your own motivation comes from. Because I don't disagree with you, actually, Roman. But at the same time, if I look at when I started my business, I don't think it was driven by desperation or I have to do that or anything like that. But at the same time, I think what you underestimate, I certainly don't underestimate now, is just that sense of, hey, we can just do our own thing. We have the confidence and we've seen that done in in the generations before us, which subconsciously probably sits in the back of your head uh, that mm-hmm. you, you can't do it. So now it's really interesting what you were saying about the generational wealth. And I, I've seen that one of my best friends, actually, his father's done incredibly well in he's, he works within his fa- father's business now. And, and he's a very smart guy, but I always look at him thinking that he almost feels like he not lives in the fa- his father's shadow, but I always get the sense that he wonders if he could have done it himself and I suppose that's the disadvantage of growing up in that generational wealth piece is you just never know whether or not you would have been capable enough to you know, start with a blank piece of paper and create something from nothing, which I think is uh, certainly something I see massively celebrated here in the US, more so than in the UK, which I think is a great thing about, about living here. Yeah, but there's a bit of a fallacy to the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing it. Like, some groups do have systemic advantages. And even like my own upbringing, if I wanted a pair of Jordans or the coolest Nike air shoes, my dad wasn't going to get me those things. 
but if there was an expense related to school or a project or I needed to buy some mm. art supplies for my social studies project, let's go do that. That's what we're going to invest in. I remember as a kid, uh, this kid who lived in another neighborhood, his mom was a teacher and I'd go spend the night. Dad was a cop, mom was a teacher and they had HBO, which is like the premium cable. And they did all these fun things. They went to Disney World and Disneyland and I would come home and I would complain, why can't we do those? And he had the designer clothes and I'd come home and I'd complain. It must've been like seven or eight. Why can't I have these things? And my parents were like, but you have family on the other side of the world and you've been to England, you've been to India and we go to California to see your family. And if there's ever a school related thing, we will get that. And it's not withhold from your children, right? Mm -hmm. But it's what do you place value on? Yeah. And I wanted the Ralph Lauren shirt, but I couldn't have it. And it's not about generational wealth that concerns me. It's about generational values, mm -hmm. I think. And it's really easy. Even, I, I face this right now. Like, it's really easy to just get my daughter whatever she wants because I can get whatever I want right now. Right. You know? And if she gets whatever she wants, is she going to value everything? Yeah. That was exactly the point I was going to mention before where you, you mentioned, certainly for all of us with children, how do you get that balance between giving your kids the life you want to give them because you've earned X amount of money and you've got enough to give them the best possible life, but at the same time, get them to understand the value. And I was chatting to one of my kids a couple of weeks ago about this and my kids have like loads of soccer jerseys, right? Like loads of them. And I was saying I was 15 years old when I got my first one and I didn't get the one I wanted. I got the second version, but nevertheless, I wore it every day for like a week. Like I really, really understood the value. And when Roman, you were saying there about Ralph Lauren, this is why I think it's hilarious that we grew up in different countries and all that type of thing. And yet I remember the first pay, like, you know, as soon as I was old enough to work, work and actually go and get a job, I went and I washed dishes at the local restaurant next to where my family lived. And as soon as I got enough money, I went to the designer shop and I bought uh, either like a, a youth a youth center on top or a Ralph Lauren top. And mm -hmm. I look back now because I like I hate designer clothes now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, and you see pictures, I, I look at pictures of myself in the nineties with like yeah. the most vulgar designer clothes. Totally. Like, look at me, I'm wearing designer clothes. That was, was the look yeah. back then though. It was like, you know, polo written <laughs> across your chest. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? Because you look at the pictures like, oh my God, could I be shouting any right. louder that I am wearing in a designer brand and I'm I'm like the exact opposite of that now but nevertheless it's a real challenge I think and for you Sharon with, with your boys and, and obviously yeah. with your daughter is how do you get that balance where uh, between so I'll give you a real life example my parents and all just sent us like a full suitcase full of goodies from the UK because we're in COVID and we can't go home we can't see each other and, and obviously we've had a baby so they just sent us loads of stuff and you know the first day it arrived, the kids were about to dig into the suitcase and just take everything. And so mm -hmm. my wife and I are like, this thing's got to last us at least two months. <laughs> so right. we need to drip feed. So we're effectively using it as bait to say, hey, if you don't muck around at breakfast time and you eat dinner and all that type of stuff, then you'll get given, you know, whatever it is, it's magazine sure. or whatever. And that's, I don't know, Sharon, is that yeah, your experience? I agree. I think it's a constant balance between how do we use those opportunities to teach them values and how do we also not breed a sense of entitlement? So my kids, they're at an age where they're really into buying virtual currency for these video games that they play. So whether it's V-Bucks for Fortnite or Robux for Roblox, they play these games and it's like five bucks or 10 bucks and you get certain currency and then you can upgrade mm -hmm. your character. 
and they're constantly asking us for first it was they they would just ask for it and the first couple of times we're like okay yeah it's your birthday or hey you did something well in school we'll give you $5 and you can use that in your game and then it became similar to you Raman from the UK well if you do your homework then you'll get this much or if you do your chores this week but then just eventually i'm spending literally sometimes it's like $100 <laughs> you know for the month to buy this stupid virtual currency like i'm out like i <laughs> the stakes are too high for me so what we've done well what i'm trying to instill in them is a sense of entrepreneurship and they're both pretty good. Well, my oldest one is actually very talented, I think, as an artist. And my little one, for six, he, he writes some pretty good stories. So now we have them creating products to sell to oh. really like their relatives. But they'll draw a picture, they'll call up grandma, and they'll try to, they'll try to sell her their whatever. Art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'll try to sell her whatever they created. And I mean, the family is tickled by this, so they haven't gotten annoyed yet. But what I like about it is I think they're learning a sense of creating something of worth and value mm -hmm. and then knowing your price. And they're learning how to negotiate, right? They're learning how to use salesmanship. I mean, I've listened in on some of these Zoom calls that they're having with my mom and dad and seeing how they're making deals. Like I think the other day, my mom was like, well, I only have 10 bucks and the little one was like, well, I'll draw you two of them and I'll throw in this other thing for 15 or like, you like, <laughs> oh, that's so good. I, I think your kids, I think your kids need to design our merch and we should set up like a Patreon. Sure. Shop. Yeah. They would, they'd totally be able to do that, but it's fun. And so they still get what they need and what they want, but they're earning it mm -hmm. in, in a really honest way for as long as our, our family is going to stand it. And then they're going to really have to find a real audience for their, for their products. It's funny, Sharon, because my kids did something similar. They basically set up a shop in the house when they were off school, where they were mm -hmm. selling, they were basically selling. Now it was before my third was born. So their only target audience was me and their mother. And so in day one of the shop, they're like, the shop's open. And we went, we went to set up a little table in the lounge and they were selling like, that Pokemon cards and yeah. all that football magazines. And so at the end of the day, I was like, how is, how is sales today, guys? Did you make any money? And they were like, well, not really. Like mum bought like this for five bucks. And I was like, okay. I was like, who are your customers? And then they were like, oh, well, you and mum are the only customers that we've got. And I'm like, okay, cool. What are we like? And they were like, well, mum likes chocolate. You like coffee and beer. And I'm like, what do you think you should be selling then? Oh, and, yeah. And then, like, I watched, like, the penny drop as he, like, ran off to tell his younger brother. And then the next, <laughs> morning, and the next morning I came in and, like, they'd raided the fridge of all my beer. And they'd, uh, they'd been to, like, the chocolate drawer and brought out not just the chocolates, the British chocolates. They knew there was a premium attached to those. And it was really fascinating because I would just watched their little brains work from being like, right. okay, I'm trying to explain that's marketing. Like you've got to understand what your customer wants and mm -hmm. then provide it to them, right? And so, but yeah, there's a lot to be said for those types of entrepreneurial lessons for your kids to just see. And, and what you said, Sharon, I love like the negotiation piece. Some of that just comes naturally. You see it and them go like, where on earth are they getting not only the vocabulary from, but their like brain is working out things. It's really good to see. Yeah. I'm partially touched and partially disturbed. <laughs> like, We're raising little marketing gremlins, all of us, aren't we? We really are. <laughs> oh, man. So, Roman, I want to ask, 
I mean, you guys have been in the States for 18 months. We obviously apparently talk more about race here and we have shittier candy. That much I will attest to. And you'd been here before you'd visited, but yeah, yeah. what's been some of the, not culture shock, but what were some of the unexpected things you've seen as an outsider coming in now that you're actually living here? There's a few things. I really like living in the US actually. I really enjoy living in Boston and what you see is some really great things about living here and some real questionable things about living here. And so I'll focus on the latter in terms of the things that really struck us, which we were unexpected. I think the first thing we were really struck by was how segregated it was. And when we moved here, we lived about a mile from where we are now. And you know, this is not an exaggeration. There's a street two blocks down from where we moved. And it was that classic thing that if you cross the tracks, it's almost a completely different ethnic group on that side of the tracks. You basically have the black community and the Hispanic community on that side of the tracks, and then you've got like everyone else on this side of the tracks. And I have to say, I found that quite surprising, which might be crazy now because I've lived here for a while and I'm understanding more about the you know, living in the US. But it was, maybe it was naivety on, on my part, but I had this, you know, <laughs> when you live in Europe, you're, you're given everything which is the American dream and in terms of its uh, cultural enrichment and togetherness and all that type of thing. And I think that was something that I didn't expect, um, certainly not in Boston. So that was certainly the first thing. The other thing that I think we've really struggled to get our head around is, is that, I mean, this is less about race and more about just the, the way of living in the US is like the healthcare system here. The way health is done here is very different to what we're used to in the UK because it's nationalized system. And again, there are advantages and disadvantages to both, but those things we found quite peculiar in terms of just, we were, we found quite surprising. But at the same time, I look at our friendship groups in Boston and we have friends from all types of different backgrounds, right? And that is something actually I don't get in Newcastle, in the Northeast of England. We have friends here who are Russian. We have friends here who are French. We have friends here who are from Finland and from you know all over the US and actually from Korea and from Japan. And that's something I love about living in a big international city like Boston, that depending on where you live in the social group that you're in, it actually feels very international and it feels very culturally enriching. But at the same time, I think that's probably more about, well, kids go to an international British school. So that's probably more about the fact that they're at that school as opposed to just that's normal society here. So those would be some of the main things that we've seen. And as I say, it's not to be overly negative or anything like that. Uh, but at the same time, there was certain aspects that we found quite, quite surprising. The political situations uh, between both of our countries is pretty messed up right now <laughs> what would uh i don't know man like just uh, I, I don't even know what, what question i'm trying to ask here but it's like i feel like i know what the question is but i know me too i can feel it coming i don't know, no, exactly I don't know. what the question is but answer, answer the qu i don't even know what it is what i don't know like comment on it what do you are you gonna go back if something does or doesn't happen but there's it's not much better back there. what's your take on things right now I think it's worse here, if I'm honest. Yeah. I'll be, and obviously I can't vote or whatever. And I've been through the immigration process coming over here and that was incredibly painful. As someone who has not only set up a business here, but I've created jobs for Americans in the US, 
that has been an incredibly painful process and not something I would wish on on anyone, quite honestly. And that might be representative of the current leadership in this country, or it might be just the way things always have been. I suspect it's the former. The interesting thing for us is just, obviously, again, being in Boston, our friends are all pretty much of you know, one-sided. Uh, and I think you can come here and be quite objective and see what's going on and like poke a little bit of fun at your friends. But I actually see the pain on the faces and in the heart and minds of quite a lot of our friends here of you know, how divided this country is at the minute. And it's, it's such a shame because it's such a great country and there's so much togetherness and potential here. Um, and they talk, you can see how much it pains. And so for all the fun and joking that we do about it, at the same time, it's not an easy subject to necessarily focus on. Being completely honest, I don't think whatever happens in November will determine if the current president stays in. It doesn't mean we're going to go back straight away or anything like that. But what I can say is I've had conversations with numerous friends who are American who have said to me, if things don't change, they will consider leaving America, which I think is quite an interesting uh, way of looking at things. Even the guy that cuts my hair, who's been here for 30 years, said the same thing. He's like, if nothing changes in November, I'm leaving, I'm going back home, wherever that is. So I think it's a very difficult time for a lot of people here. And I think Sharon will probably appreciate this. From a pure entertainment and marketing perspective, I am absolutely fascinated by how it plays out because watching how the candidates campaign and how they use social media and how they use the media is genuinely fascinating. And you just don't get that in the UK. People are just too polite to do that in the UK. And so you just see this unbelievable marketing machine of both sides and how it works and who they're trying to reach and how they're going to do the swing states. And I have to say, I find it very fascinating, like the whole Thing and, and I'm genuinely very excited, which is probably not a word that you're probably thinking of. I'm really excited for <laughs> November to be here, to be part of it. Whatever the outcome is, I think it's a great experience for anyone to be here when a US election is happening because it makes, even in the UK, when the US election is happening, it hijacks the entire news channels all evening. Shows you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, no, because it's such a big deal and you guys market things better than anyone in the world. So it's given such a huge prominence. And so to be here for what could actually be a really close election or actually a massive change or whatever the outcome is, it is what it is. I'm sure we all agree what we probably want, but it's genuinely quite something I'm excited to see and and be part of, and which is probably not a word that you guys are probably... (laughs) I mean, I think the... We were all here during the Bush era and everyone was more serious about moving to Canada and it became almost this like progressive thing you would say. But the stakes feel more real here. Before it was like policy differences and slowly moving laws, but like erosion of norms. And Sharon and I just recorded an episode where I don't feel safe if by going. I get the same chill down my spine seeing a Trump sign these days that than I did when I was a kid seeing a Confederate flag. I literally feel there's hate behind it versus economic policy differences on who's going to get a tax break or I hate to say who we're going to go to war with. There's more inward divisiveness versus outward difference in ideology. And it's just, Mm -hmm. and I'm a parent now and I wasn't a parent before. And so that's, I think, I feel like the the fear centers are a little more raw now than they've ever been for, for me. Yeah. Is it the same for you as well, Sharon? Yeah, we've discussed this recently as well. And I think 
I live in a, we were having a whole episode about yard signs and being public about where you stand and how open you can be about that or, or how socially acceptable it would be. And I've moved into a new neighborhood. So when we had recorded the episode, I guess it was two weeks ago now, I wasn't really sure where people stood. But since then, I have an update, guys. <laughs> I walk by an F Trump sign on my corner. <laughs> and I posted this to you, Raman. I'm part of a, a buy nothing group locally in my neighborhood. And someone was um, giving away Black Lives Matter signs. And they're like, I've got two more. And then within like three minutes, she had posted an update. She was like, oh, they've already been claimed. So wow. I'm living in the right neighborhood <laughs> for me, for my own beliefs, which is comforting. But I agree with Raman. I feel like if it was the opposite, if I was in a neighborhood that was highly, highly conservative or highly, highly Trump supportive, mm -hmm. I wouldn't feel safe either because I'm married to a black man. I've got two mixed race kids. We are much more liberal than we are conservative. And it's one of those moments where I never really thought that being free to express our beliefs and our values, and even just our, our voting preferences would be something that would be attacked. But that's the mm. reality that we're living in now. It, it, it's of, interesting, it, the safety thing, Sharon, in Roman is, I mean, a, a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine who lives some of his life in the US and some in the UK. And he rang me and basically said, when your baby's born, get out of the US. Genuinely, mm. he's like, you need to go home. And I was like, <laughs> I was like laughing off, like, okay. And he was like, no, no, no. He's like, he's, I, I'm not sure if you got, if I'm allowed to swear, but I'll, I'll paraphrase. But yeah, yeah, go for it, man. he, he go was for just it. like, shit's going to go down in the next few months in the US in terms of cocktail of politics, COVID, unemployment, desperation. Yeah. Like th there is a lot. And he's like, you, you do not want to be there for that. And my wife and I have talked about it because what's nice about living here is, you know, we've, we've made a lot of good friends and even they have said to us guys, like, we worry for you being here, which is really quite sad um, to, to that people have to even think like that. But we haven't quite got to that point where I think when the protests were quite bad a few months back, that was the only time where I was like, oh God, should we should we be here? Because we don't right. need to be here, if I'm honest. I mean, from a, a financial business and actually being here for clients and all that, yep, absolutely. But you know, the world has changed in the last three months beyond or six months beyond belief that mm -hmm. you know, I could be in anywhere in the world and I don't think it would make any difference anymore. But I feel quite sad that you guys f have to face that despite being from here and part of the community and part of the country. And it's a sad state of affairs that you don't feel safe potentially in your own country, which is not something you would have ever thought of a modern America. In yeah. my but, but the flip side to the argument is, and the thing that makes, I think a lot of us stay is, I, mean, I hate to use someone else's language, but it's, we have to stand our ground here. Mm -hmm. This is our country too. It's our country of our values as well. And so we shouldn't be scared off. And the more of us, and, th and this is literally me pumping myself up. Like the more I care about my values, the more of a reason I have to stay. And I don't want to say fight for them, but yeah, you can't let it be overtaken. We can't let this divisiveness take us over, which mm -hmm. it is. And it's not about fighting fire with fire, but it's standing up for the moderate, rational point of view, which I think is getting lost. When you see, I got to be careful what I say, but like there are protests on both sides and 
it is not it's not equal on both sides but you see the infighting or the outfighting between these right mm -hmm. protesters and counter protesters and one is more justified than the other or one is agitating the other it's getting dangerous it's a powder keg and that's yeah. what's scary and i think that's one of the reasons we have to stay because if you don't then it does devolve into something worse i think and do you guys have a view? I mean, obviously it depends on when this particular episode airs, but do you guys have a view on what you think the outcome will be in November or is it too... Is it, <laughs> and I'm asking as an objective British guy living in the US and, hey guys, what do you think is going to happen? Or is does no one want to predict because they just don't know or they don't want to tempt fate or whatever? I think it's so hard to say. I would like to think that we'll see some change in November especially because of everything that's happened in the last six months. But I was shocked four years ago. Mm -hmm. Like I was really surprised that Trump won. And when I actually did a social media analysis that night, because I was just like, how did this happen? And I wish I had read the tea leaves because I didn't realize how powerful his social media was until I actually did that exercise. Like when I looked at how many followers he had, when I looked at how much money he had invested in advertising, which you can pull as a digital marketer. It was clear to me at that point, like after he won, why he won. So going into this next election, I feel like it's really all up in the air because you're right, Roman. I think it's more marketing than anything else. And mm -hmm. he's got pretty smart marketing people on his team. And so I think it's going to be an interesting course of events. Well, I, I wouldn't say... I think he has subconscious instincts on how to own the conversation. There's a saying I really subscribe to, be it in the political situation or work or anything, but it's hope for the best, plan for the worst. But no matter what the outcome is, whoever wins, the division isn't going to go away. Mm -hmm. If hmm. Biden wins, there are yeah. going to be very angry people with guns. If Trump wins, there are going to be very angry people with signs. Uh, and and both sides uh, and I speak say one about, sounds so much more dangerous <laughs> than the other though can I just yeah, point no that shit. out no shit. Um, <laughs> and the rhetoric that's going to be thrown from the other side no matter what happens is going to be terrible and false and so again even if Biden and Harris win I do think it will get us closer to I mean you won't have someone inciting just terrible things from the top, but there's still going to be a lot of incitement. So yeah, this is a really happy place to like. <laughs> it's about, I'm just, it was something that Sharon said there about, which it's funny, current president has very smart marketing people. I almost said the exact same thing to a friend the other day saying it, it, you know, it's a lot in marketing about, you know, you guys all know as well. I mean, getting a following thousand true fans or mm -hmm. and all that type of thing. And What's really interesting is how he galvanizes his audience. He plays yeah. to his audience so, so well, which I know is terrible to say, but he knows his audience so well. And that audience is influential and that they will influence friends and family. And it's literally a battle of perception and a battle of not whatever the necessary policies are going to be. And yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what happens as we get closer to November. Yeah. Come on, Roman, you're going to have to lift the mood. I know. Well, Let's talk about we, we, Yeah, no, we actually, I don't know, Sharon, I think we've covered pretty much every topic. We have. My doppelganger can <laughs> give us. What do yeah. you think, speed round? I think it's time for speed round. Oh, God. <laughs> Best response. Roman, tell us something about you that no one else knows. I have a really random claim to fame that I interviewed Avril Lavigne on national radio in the UK <laughs> about 15, 20 years ago. I randomly won a competition to 
interview the Canadian rock, I don't know what you call that, alternative rock star. And then I physically had to go and meet her and interview her, which was the most weird experience of my entire life. So I said no one knows that. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it went live on national radio, but I can't imagine it's in the archives. I'm pretty sure they've deleted that. Um, but that's such a random story that I thought maybe not many people know. <laughs> Were you starstruck when you were doing it? <sighs> I can't, I don't think so. She's really small, which is, it's something you ever, everything. I mean, I'm tiny anyway, but I remember she was, a, she was a real like moody, like, I mean, she played her persona really, really well, but yeah. what was interesting is we went to see her in concert that night because we got free tickets to go and see her and the her producer guy who was there, he basically came to see me to get my address. This is like pre-iPhone era, so there was no texting or whatever. I had to write down my address and he apologized for that you that you were such a moody cow <laughs> and he then sent me it was very sweet actually like a, a week later we had a package and it was cds rather than apple uh spotify or whatever at the time like the top 100 cds in the charts the guy had sent us his an apology for how she was which is really oh. nice <laughs> but yeah it was just a weird quirk of a, a drunken weekend where we were driving to a city to go out for a night out and we heard this competition and we rang up the radio just as a complete joke. And any, anyway, we ended up getting through and I ended up basically winning the competition and, and having to go meet Avril Lavigne, which was just so weird. So there you go. So funny. What is a book or movie or show with characters that you can relate to that you'd recommend to us or to our listeners? I wrote a blog about movie quotes uh, last year, actually, about some that come to mind. And there's two films that it's not necessarily that I relate to the character, but there's a film called Wanted, which has got Angelina Jolie in, and there's a film called Limitless, which has got, uh, I can't remember what the, the, the really good looking guy who's in Hangover, I can't remember what his name is. Zach Galifianakis, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the other guy. And both films are an interesting play on unlocking what's inside you, if that makes sense. In, in different pathways, Unwanted, the, he gets brought into a fraternity of assassins. And the other one is he takes an illegal drug, which unlocks the power of his brain. But both of them resonate with me, which like that, you've got everyone has something else, like another gear or something inside them and just trying to work out how you unlock it. And you can achieve a lot more in life than you think you can if you can work out how to unlock those kind of pathways. Nice. So it's funny, having read some of the things you've written online in the past few years that I've been internet stalking you, it's <laughs> funny that this idea of unlocking and finding the formula to doing things, because that's very much something I've observed from afar that you like to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're almost like your own personal life hacker. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, I genuinely, I cannot believe, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way, I cannot believe the success I've had like genuinely considering how I view myself. And that doesn't mean I'm insecure or I'm dumb or anything like that. I just think there are, I look back at decisions that I've made and things that I've done, which I want to share with the world. And that's what I do through my writing is like, do this and you'll have a much better life, right? And I mean, my personal mantra is just be better than yesterday, which is, simply about getting better every single day. So whether that means reading a book or listening to a good podcast or speaking to people around you and just not wasting your life scrolling social media feeds and just improve yourself ever so slightly every day. 
and over time you can you can achieve amazing things is my experience of life up to this point what's your favorite mom dish definitely chicken sag which is a spinach based like curry dish i would have had it when i went back for the holidays in december when my mum was here in boston last year she was here for like three weeks and i think she made it like five times <laughs> when she was here and actually about a year or two ago she made it for all of my team in the office and to this day everyone still talks about oh, <laughs> the day that i brought the saga in the chicken sag it was like a monumental day you know bigger than any client win or any it was like <laughs> it was like light bulb moment of oh my god that was the greatest thing ever so yeah my mum makes pretty awesome indian food and th- that's the dish which i i adore yeah what's your least favorite food you're gonna laugh because i'm indian but i absolutely hate what do you call it in america you call it cilantro coriander cilantro yeah honestly and, and Roman will tell you if you didn't know anywhere, like like Indian people throw put it on everything. Oh my god, everything. So like when I'm at anyone's house or like at a wedding, and I'm like, oh my god, they've thrown it on top, and then like I have to like sift it out and just look like a bum with my hands in in my dish, just trying to get the green stuff out. So. Yeah, I absolutely, I cannot stand, but it's funny because I've listened to a few of your episodes and what a really recent episode, the guy called, I think he's called Matt and he was saying he, he's from California, he doesn't like avocados. And yeah. I, I, it's funny because when I heard that and I'm like, oh, and I don't like avocados at all. I just don't really understand them. And I'm a very healthy eater generally and people get their head around the fact that I do not like avocados. I just, <laughs> I just like, just don't get it. I'm like, they just don't taste of anything. They add no value. They're just pointless. And my wife loves avocados. Um, but I was laughing my head off when I was hearing him say that he didn't like avocados. And I think he's married to a Mexican lady as well or something like that. Yeah. Was, that's well, Roman, I just got a text from Prime Minister Modi. Your Indian street cred has been revoked. <laughs> I don't like the Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, it's funny because when I, when you asked me that question, I thought of dunia, which is the Indian word. And then I thought of coriander, which is the English word. And I was just like, shit, what, what do Americans call that again? When I was probably in my twenties starting to cook my own Indian food, following my mom's recipes, I remember walking into a grocery store and I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. And the lady's like, can I help you? I was like, where's the dunya? And she's like, the what? Cause I did not know that dunya was coriander was cilantro because most vegetables and spices i have three words floating in my head and because i didn't cook i didn't know that they were the same thing <laughs> you have a podcast but the nature of your podcast is more sciencey i guess or more marketingy but if you could have anyone on your show who would you want to have a conversation with i'm not sure any of the people i'd really want <laughs> from a a celeb perspective would want to come on the molecule to market, which is about the the drug development space. <laughs> I like, I love the Tim Ferriss podcast in terms of you know, interviewing world-class people. I love that concept because I think you can learn so much from people that have pushed themselves to the limit. So I think probably tying my love with soccer, football, I think someone like Leo Messi, who's the best footballer, in the world or someone like Jurgen Klopp who is arguably the best manager in the world and has an incredibly great mannerism about the way like he's a full of life outgoing smiley coach yet somehow gets incredible results from his team 
and there's obviously something in his formula. So I think being able to interview someone like that, probably for a sports podcast rather than a, a drug development pharmaceutical. One. <laughs> uh, there's still time to pivot it, man. There's still yeah, time to pivot it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, that's what I love about podcasts generally as a medium that you can create any any niche of podcast, and there will probably be an audience, even if it, you know it is your mom, like you say, Roman. <laughs> There'll be one person that listens. That's all that matters. That's, that's all, all that, that matters. And you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, this is actually worth noting. So I have this secret third comic book podcast that I do with a reporter buddy of mine. And no one listens. And it's fine. We do it for ourselves because before the pandemic, we would have gotten together for Bon Me or coffee and just argued about a comic book. But his aunt listens. And his aunt doesn't read comics. And she writes us these really sweet emails. And so we've decided, she's like one of 10 listeners. And we've decided that we're just going to drop a reference to Auntie Penny in every episode from now on. Oh. <laughs> That's, That's very cute. Yeah, it's great. All right. Last question, Remen from the UK. Are you ready for this? I'm, I'm ready, Sharon. All right. What does being a modern minority mean for you? Um... I, I think for me, it's it's ultimately about being the best you can be and, and ultimately setting a good example for others, uh, whether it's your own children or your colleagues or your friends. You know, I think that's less about necessarily being a minority, it's just being a human and giving it, not, not going to your last day on earth thinking, going in with any regrets. So for me, it's about leaving it all on the field. And I, I'm fortunate enough that, People have said to me, you've blazed the trail for people in the UK to potentially look at the US as a place because me moving, bringing my business to the US is very unusual. It's never been done within our wider family. Um, so if it came to like that thought of blazing a trail or setting a good example for other people to follow and better themselves, I think that's what it means to me is just simply being the best you can be and being a good role model for other people. That's wonderful. And so much better than rum and U.S. Anything I could have said. <laughs> yeah. See, so it's like when Apple updates its software on phone. Right. So like <laughs> rum and U.S. is like iPhone 3 and like I'm like 11 or something now. That's, that's accurate. Oh, that's a big, that's a big <laughs> difference there, guys. I was going to yeah. be like version 1.0 and version 1, 2.0, no, but okay. Absu I'm absolutely joking. <laughs> I, uh, no, he's definitely next generation iPhone software and hardware and all that stuff. And uh, I'm excited to see his journey and you're at a crossroads in your own life. And I'm really excited to see where you take it. And I'm sure whatever you decide to do, Roman, you'll smash it and make a success of it. Yeah. You know, other Roman, I think we're both pretty reflective guys on the things that we see and think about in this world. We have a lot of similarities, a lot of differences, but the last few years getting to know you a reflection is the wrong word. It's just been, hey, it's. I would encourage every listener to go find someone with their own name and just get to know that person. <laughs> it started out as a surreal thing, but our conversations are always so fun. And uh, I don't, there's, there's an interesting familiarity that I have yeah. in every chat I have with you, man. And it's, I, it's bizarre, isn't it? I, it's exactly what I said to my wife as well. It's like I've known you for years. That's how it feels. Like we've known each other all our lives. And, uh, and one thing I didn't say at the start, which I forgot to say, is like you pronounce your name correctly. Like my name has been butchered over the years, and my public persona is Roman Segal. It's not Roman Segal, which is just confuses the hell out of people. So <laughs> well done to you for retaining your actual name, whereas... Uh, it's from my dad shouting at the stage at every spelling bee I've been in, so yeah. I Honestly, I reckon 95% of the people in the world, and I even say my name's Roman Segal, because that's 
my public persona because yeah. it's just done that now. And then it really, I have friends that call me Roman and Roman. And then like mid conversation or in a meeting, they will call me both. And a client will be like, wait, did you just change his name? Like, or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so funny. So you've done very well to retain like the true heritage of your name. Whereas I have, I have lost all of that credibility. <laughs> the Romans in India do not like me for that reason. I I don't think they like me either, man. So we have that in common. (laughs) I think they'd be very proud of both. Sharon's so much nicer than you, Roman. Honestly, I can't believe (laughs) it. That's why we keep her on the show. You guys should just... That's the only reason. That's the only reason. Marketing people are the best, honestly. Sure they are. That's that's what they want you to believe. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I think you guys are doing a really cool thing. I think you're opening up conversations that otherwise have been left behind the scenes or in bars and all that over the last 20 years or so good on you it's a very well-timed topical subject that you guys are unlocking so credit people thanks thank you and that's our show like what you heard please subscribe leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform now more than ever people need to be hearing these stories please share our show with a friend or three want to learn more or got something to share visit modmypod.com or email us hi mom at modmypod.com You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Teaching isn't what we do, it's who we are. That is the essence of teaching. And it's very difficult when who you are is constantly under attack, which has been happening lately because it's who you are as a person. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.